Testing, testing. Okay, I think we're recording. Okay, well, I know people are going to keep trickling in, and I would love to wait for them, but there is just so much good stuff to talk about this morning that we are going to press on. I'm really, really excited about this class and really glad that you're all here. So uh, let me just go ahead and um, I guess let me say for the sake of the recording, there's a thing in my pocket recording this, and we say what class this is, and then we'll start with a prayer. But this is the uh, John 13 through 17 class, the Upper Room Discourse, or the way I like to title it, the Living Life with an Invisible Savior class. So let us uh, pray. Lord, this is just a really awesome time to come together and study your word together, to meditate on it, to, to consume it, to allow it to dwell in us richly, to be transformed by it, to, to have it as a light, that, uh, a lamp that lights our path, um, to eat it and taste it, to be as sweet as honey, to be renewed by it, to be transformed by it, to see it as a treasure that is um, brings about wisdom in our life, that as it, see it as a, a salve that brings comfort and soothing um, to the sufferings that we go through in this life. So I pray, Lord, that you would just be glorified as we studied this, that you would help each person in this room to just grow more intimately acquainted with their Savior, to grow in their love for Him and in their uh, enjoyment of Him and in their service of Him. May you be honored and greatly praised through this time. Amen. <clears throat> okay, just a quick preface about kind of how I teach uh, Sunday school classes. Uh, I always like to do handouts. I like to do handouts for two reasons. One, it kind of gives you something to follow along with and take notes if you're a note taker. Gives you something to reflect on if you want to look back on it later. I won't be offended if you throw it away though, so you don't have to hold on to it for my sake. Um, it also it provides an opportunity for people to study on their own. So I always try to craft a Sunday school handout in such a way that you could take this home without me ever teaching on it, and you could go through it yourself. You could study God's Word, follow along, and you can make the observations and the conclusions yourself. I want any time that I preach or teach to be able to in somewhat impart to you how to do that. I never want to teach or preach in such a way that you walk away going like, man, Tyson's amazing. He has some secret gift where he, he just unlocks the Bible. I don't know how to do that. No. If that's what's happening, then I, I, that's bad. But you should be able to, I want, the greatest feeling in the world is when you're studying the Bible and it just, ah, the aha moments. Like, I see that in the text. I see how that observation there, I, I can see that myself. And, and you grow in awareness and sensitivity to that. As, so then when you're studying in your own personal life, you start making those own observations as well. Giving you the tools to use them. So you might... You'd be receiving some new tools this quarter while we study this class, and you might not be used to using them, but I hope and pray that you'll get better equipped at them. I used a, uh, a wood router for the first time this fall and did a woodworking project, and uh, am I still on? Felt like a cutout. Still there? Okay. Um, and so I, this is a tool I never used before. And uh, the, the, the quality of my project probably shows that. But as I get to use a router more and more, as I use woodworking tools more and more, hopefully I get better at it. And so that would be my hope for you as well. Look at the first page of your handout. I'm going to introduce not just the uh, section of John 13 that we're going to go through today, but really going to introduce the class as a whole. Um, so I'm going to be your main teacher for most of the time, but uh, we're also going to have the privilege of having Jamar Williams preach, uh, teach a couple of the classes as well throughout this quarter. But I really want to set up what it is we're doing in this class. So look at the introduction. Every year, Google analyzes the trends on its search engine, and in 2022, they found that the top five word searches of the year was Wordle, Election Results, Betty White, Queen Elizabeth, and Bob Saget. 
They, they also listed the top trends for searches related to the news, people, definitions. Apparently people wanted to know what a rupee, an oligarch, and a recession was. I don't know why. And how-to questions. That was a sarcastic joke anyways about the recession. Although these trends shed some interesting and at times sad insight into the hearts of humanity, they also reveal how popular of a tool Google is to people. So why is Google such a popular tool? Because they think they can just go there and find out anything. They don't always find the truth. Yeah, okay. So they think it's a, uh, just a uh, complete repository of all information you could ever hope for, and everything out there is true. So that, that might be some way people think. What else? What else? People are always interested in the Okay, yeah, you can go out there and read about some weird stuff out there, <laughs> no matter how obscure it is. Yeah, what else? Easy to access. Easy to access. Yeah, I don't know if Google still does it, but it used to in the early days where as soon as you clicked a search, it told you how many seconds it took to find all the results. It was like, you know, 0.17 seconds or something like that for 600,000 results. So yeah, there's some there's this instant gratification aspect of it where if you don't know something, how do you spell this word? Don't worry, I can figure that out. Ah, there's a Bible verse that I really ah, uh, but I can't read it. Oh, I can. You know, I'll just Google it, right? We've all done it. We've all done it. So Google is is this big repository of information. Not all of it true, but it is a big repository of information. So if you ignore all the data mining and surveillance Google conducts, it's a very powerful and convenient information resource. With it, we can easily look up directions, how to spell words, definitions, grammar rules. We can look up Bible verses or even look up symptoms of illnesses and treatments. That's not always a wise and safe thing to do. But as nice as this is, there are some questions Google can't answer for you. What is God's will for my life? I would be interested to go. I should have Googled that before today. <laughs> what Google would have told me. <laughs> How can I find victory over sin and temptation? How do I keep the faith and persevere? How do, how do I maintain joy when life is hard and full of suffering? How do I know if I'm truly saved? How can I overcome fear of man to share the gospel with people I know? These are just a small sample of the challenging questions faced in the life and journey of every follower of Christ. The challenge isn't that there isn't no answer. It's just that the answers aren't always easily found. As convenient as Google is, it cannot help you with all of our questions, and it lacks the ability to give you the specific and nuanced answers tailored to you. So what are some advantages, kind of thinking about the disciples and the Gospel of John, what were some of the advantages the 12 disciples had while Jesus was on earth that we don't have today? Yeah, you got to talk to God directly. I mean, I don't, don't want to dare compare Jesus to Google, but uh, if you had a specific question about theology, about life, you could ask him directly, and he would give you a tailored spot, uh, answer to you. What else? What are some other advantages? Yeah, that would be nice to know. That would be. Nice to know what you look like. I, I, um, if you hang out with me long enough, you, you'll know I hate, hate uh, depictions of Jesus of a Caucasian white male. Oh, I just, just really gets me. It's just like, that is not what Jesus looked like at all. It's not even close. Anyways, what else? What are some other advantages? Yeah, to know what's right, what's right and what's wrong. You're just watching him handle all these difficult situations, watching him handle uh, um, when Pharisees are trying to trip him up in his words, watching him when somebody sins against him. How does he respond? That'd be really, really valuable. How else? What, a bit, what are some other advantages? We kind of talk about like what to do in life. Jesus was really leading the ministry during his three years on earth. The disciples were following. It's like, what are we going to do today? We'll see what Jesus is going to tell us to do. Jesus was the one with the vision. Jesus was the one with the answers. And anytime you struggle with sin, 
you know Jesus was going to be able to help you figure it out. He was going to be able to teach you what you needed to do. There was a lot of advantages. And disciples got to experience these kinds of advantages and the, because of their privilege of being in his inner circle for three years. But this special opportunity wasn't going to remain the same forever. Jesus explicitly warned them and foretold that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again. The disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus had come to do, so they couldn't fathom a reality without their Messiah, their Savior and King, being physically present with them. But that's what was about to happen. Even though they weren't asking the questions they should have in light of His impending departure, Jesus answered the questions for them, and they are recounted in the Gospel of John. The question that Jesus answers in John 13 through 17, commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse, the question the disciples didn't ask but should have, and the one question that this study will cover throughout these next 12 weeks, is how do you live life with an invisible Savior? Can you imagine what it was like, after having depended on Jesus' physical presence, guidance, and leadership for three years, to have that suddenly taken away? If you were in the disciples' shoes, you would have felt like a lost child whose parents had tragically been killed in a car accident, and now you're orphaned. What do I do? Who's going to take care of me? How am I going to know what to do? Who's going to teach me? That's the very language Jesus himself uses when he encourages the disciples in John chapter 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So what should have been the greatest concern of the disciples back then should be our concern today. The answers to this question, how do you live life with an invisible Savior, are still of the greatest importance and relevance to us today. So just let me give you a little bit of background and context before we jump into John chapter 13. Page, top of page 2 in your handout. In John chapter 21, verses 30 through 31, it's the very end of the Passion narrative, the Apostle John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. How can you tell what's important to somebody? What, the, what they're saying is one thing. What's in their checkbook might be the best way. Yeah, okay. So Alan says uh, by what they talk about, or often too, what's, uh, what their checkbook says, <laughs> what, what they uh, spend their money on. Yeah. Um, what else, what's another, one other way you could tell what's important to somebody? Yeah, their time. What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time doing? All those things are often very interwoven, right? But I think time, money, and what we talk about. Because um, what we talk about reveals what we spend our time thinking about. Well, based on this verse we just read in John, what was important to him? Or in other words, what is the purpose of him writing the Gospel of John? He wanted to give the narrative that through Jesus... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wanted to give a narrative. He wanted to give an account of Jesus' signs. That's what it says in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book. So you read through the whole Gospel of John, you'll see a lot of it is um, centered on signs, the miraculous wonders that Jesus did. And why did John feel it was important to talk about the signs? to give a historical account of those. Yeah, that's what he says right there in verse 31, right? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So anytime, again, this is kind of a preface about my handouts. I'll, I'll, I'll try to always include the scriptures there in the handouts so that we don't have to spend a lot of time thumbing through the Bible and don't have to deal with uh, kind of interpreting different types of translations you guys might have. It can all kind of be on the same page together. But when I ask questions that follow a verse, 
usually the answer is there in the verse. And so if, you, if you're trying to think about it, you can stare at your page and nod at me and, and try to figure the answer out. But question number five, does this mean that the book, if it's meant, you know, verse 31, that you may believe there's an evangelistic purpose in John's writing of the gospel, does this mean that the book is not meant for growing believers? Why or why not? It is meant for growing believers because you can read through it and you can figure out. It's like every time I read through certain scriptures, all of a sudden I might think, "Oh, that 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 really pertains to this too." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Alan kind of points out that as you read it more and more, it just more things, new things stand out to you, and it helps you grow in your walk with the Lord. Yeah, I would say that uh, John uses this as an evangelistic. He wrote this for the purpose of evangelism and, I would say, apologetics. Helping believers grow in their understanding of their own faith and giving a defense for the faith. Kind of like in 1 Peter 3.15 where Jesus tells us to sanctify or set apart the Lord as holy in your heart. Being prepared to give a defense, and apologia is the word there in the Greek, a defense for the hope that you have within. So as a believer, you hear the gospel for the first time, you respond, you're converted, and then why? Why do you believe? And you read something like John and you say, this is why I believe. Look at all these miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus has done. Look at these amazing things that he has taught and how it's transformed my life. You think about Apostle Paul when he stood on trial so many times in the book of Acts, when he gave his gospel presentation, it wasn't just this... um, dry treatise or paper about the gospel. It was, hey, I used to be an unbeliever and I hated Jesus, but then he changed me. That was his defense for the hope that he had within. It was his own testimony. Same thing here for us as we, as we read through this. It's not just about evangelism. It's not just about rehearsing basic facts of the gospel. It's about growing in our understanding of Christ, growing deeper in our love for Him and our understanding of Him so that we might grow and be more like Him in turn. Middle of page 2 says, The Apostle John, who is known throughout this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote this gospel near the end of his life, for the purpose of evangelizing unbelievers and to be an apologetic that strengthened the faith of believers. The beginning of chapter 13 marks a big transition point in John's gospel. It marks the close of Jesus' public ministry and focuses in on Jesus' intimate ministry to his disciples. So out of, out of 21 chapters, John devotes five of those chapters, that's almost 25% of the letter, to a few hours of Jesus' life. And we just asked, I asked you, how do you know it's important to somebody? He spends 25% of his gospel focusing only on a few hours of Jesus' life. That's a pretty big signal that this is important. <laughs> this degree of emphasis indicates that what is taught in these chapters is of incredible importance to John and, the, and to his audience. It also shows us the heart of our Savior and what he values most. J.C. Ryle marveled at this section of Scripture when he wrote, In every age, the contents of these chapters have been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. They have been the meat and drink, the strength and comfort of all true-hearted Christians. So let us approach them with peculiar reverence. So turn to page 3. Let's look at the central theme of John chapter 13. You can open your Bibles if you want, but again, I will have the Scriptures provided in your handout. I've got my Bible open too over here. So in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now it's interesting, there's a couple things here in, the, in this verse that really stand out. And look at question number six. Jesus himself had referred a few times to his hour before this point in John. And John mentions it several times. 
What does that phrase refer to? Jesus knew that his hour. What does that mean? The culmination of his purpose for coming. Culmination of his purpose for coming. Okay. Anybody else? That it was time for him to take his sin, our sins upon himself. Yeah. Somebody over here. Sorry. I said his arrest and death. His arrest and his death. All of those answers, I think, are true. And the text here answers it a little bit for us. It says, "When Jesus knew that his hour had come, to what? To depart out of this world to the Father." Isn't that a really interesting way of speaking about his death? It doesn't say, it doesn't say that he, his time had come, his hour had come to die. He could have said that. That would have been true. But that's not what it says. To depart out of this world to the Father. So I, I do believe that this refers to the time in which he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be tried falsely, and that he was going to be crucified but it also refers to the time when he would be known and proclaimed as the Messiah, that he would publicly reveal his deity to all the world. The Son of God veiled in flesh, revealing fully that he is God. And how did he do that? The resurrection. How does he depart back to the Father? Through the resurrection. So all of that is embedded in here, which is just really amazing that Jesus is focusing not just on his death, but the fact that he had come to glorify God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is what this hour, it's a very full and pregnant phrase there that means so it's not just referring to his death but all those things what stands out about this question seven what stands out about jesus's response to his omniscient knowledge of his impending departure his acceptance of it okay Kind of think about, you know, as you're thinking about that question, like, how would I respond if I knew I was going to die in a couple hours? His concern for his disciples. Yeah, his concern for his disciples. That's what's so fascinating about this. Jesus, knowing that he was about to depart, focused on other people. That is so contradictory to how we would often respond. Now, if you're, as parents, you might think about like, oh, the people you're leaving behind and try to you know, make, make amends, but usually you're going to be really wrestling with focusing on yourself. Like, am I, am I right with the Lord? Is, is everything attend, you know, taken care of? And things like that. But Jesus was focused on others. Question number eight. Sometimes the writers of Scripture give clear signals to the main point that they are trying to draw the reader's attention to. Here, John is doing the same thing in verse 1. So what is John wanting us to see as a main theme throughout chapters 13 through 17? Just based off that first verse. Love is one of his primary characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, G, that love is one of Jesus' primary characteristics. How does this verse tell us that love is one of his primary characteristics? Very last phrase. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That is a profound phrase in this verse. And you're going to see that phrase explained and displayed throughout chapters 13 through 17. And you might think, oh, that's so nice. Uh, good for those disciples. But it's not just for them. It says in the verse 1, it, came, it was time for his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world. He loves those who are his own who are still in the world. And that would include us believers today. Jesus, having departed from this world, going to the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father, loves those who are his own who are still in the world. And he loves them to the end. Love is sometimes a hard thing to define. I love music. I love pizza. I could eat it every meal of every day. (laughs) Even cold, my wife can attest. Chiefs football, especially yesterday. Jayhawk basketball. I love my wife, Candace, my children. I love the church. I love my fellow believers. What's the problem with defining love based off of that sentence, off of that, what I just said? Like you kind of started with the wrong thing. <laughs> you ended with the best thing was the church. Yeah. Other believers. <laughs> so so why is that? Why why, you say, why do you think that's wrong for me to say those things? Or just get back to the question, I guess. What what's wrong with trying to d- come up with a definition of love based on what I just said? Because we we say those things all the time, right? Man, I love this coffee. I love pizza. Man, I love watching football. It seems to imply that each of those things are valued the same. Okay, yeah. I think that's what you were getting at, Alan, that I'm kind of equating all those things in the same way by saying I love them all. Do I really love pizza as much as I love Candace? I hope not. <laughs> Maybe the best thing is to be able to have pizza with Candace. That would, make, that would help, right? Uh, I hope I don't love pizza or music as much as I love the church or my children or my wife. Our world is obsessed with love. This is question number 10. We hear love talked about in movies, songs, books, media, and all over the internet. And how does the world define love? I mean, they they might not be able to articulate this to you, but how is it really defined? I think it's part of the problem is English has love, where if you went back to the Greek and that, they, they... have it in different levels mm-hmm. and mean different meanings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, though, in the Bible, those different Greek words can be used synonymously. So sometimes it has a little bit of, you know, interesting observations to make, but oftentimes even the Gospel of John uses uh, the different Greek words for love synonymously. But but how does the world define love based on the way they use it? Yeah, Justin? The world's love is also kind of conditional, right? Okay. Yeah, conditional. I love the pizza, but uh, I might love that pizza that's coming after this pizza yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. You know, so I think, uh, I think some of that is conditional, um, depending on the circumstances and, and things where Jesus' love is unconditional. He loves us no matter why. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the uh, one aspect of the world's definition of love is that it's conditional, okay, based on what... It, what, it can, what you can do for me, what it does for me. What else? How else would you describe the definition, or the world's definition of love? Selfish. Selfish, yeah. Very selfish. Very self-focused. How else? Something you fall in and out of. So it's a you know it's it's defined at this base level of just an emotion. Which is very um, opposite of how the Bible defines it, but it's this emotion, and so it's, since it's a subjective thing, it's something you can fall out of or fall into. You know, you see that in the movies, right, all the time. They fall in love, but the, and then, or we hear that in, in, you know, sadly in divorce court. You know, as you give a reason for why you're divorcing your spouse, it's like, well, we just don't love each other anymore. We've fallen out of love. How is the world's definition contrasted with the Bible's definition? Mm-hmm. So to kind of summarize what you said, the Bible's definition is is love is not about the self, but about others. About yeah. How else? What what else uh, stands out to you guys about 
the Bible, how the Bible would describe and define love versus the world. Okay. Yeah. God is love. So uh, he's uh, an example and he is the epitome of what we should look to if we're trying to find out what love is. And love never fails. You know where that phrase comes from? Love never fails or love never ends. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. So if you ever want to describe biblical love to somebody, you go to 1 Corinthians 13. And if you ever want a really, really challenging and convicting exercise, you replace the word love with your name. So in verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So a convicting thing is, again, place your name in there. Tyson is patient and kind. Is that true? Tyson does not envy or boast. Tyson is not arrogant or rude, and so on and so forth. You want an encouraging thing, you put Jesus' name in there, and you recognize how that is true all the time. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. And we see that modeled in his submission to the Father when he took on flesh. He is not irritable or resentful. He is not. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus' love never ends. That is a biblical definition of love. It is an act. Love is an act, not an emotion. And it is an act of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. That is what love biblically is. An act of sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else. That could mean sacrifice to the ultimate degree, as Jesus talked about, like in Romans 5, of giving your life for somebody. But it could mean also just the small things of life, or even heavy, hard things in life, where you sacrifice something of yours, your time, your energy, your money, your efforts, resources, for the benefit of somebody else, unconditionally. So what does it mean then in John 13, 1? You're like, man, this is a snail pace going through this chapter. Still in verse 1. What does it mean that Jesus loved them to the end? Forever. Okay. If I was on my deathbed and I told my wife, honey, I love you to the I've, I've loved you to the end. What would that kind of imply? How would you interpret that? Yeah, to the very end of time, right? To the point of time on earth, right? So that could, be, that could be one way to take it. Your Bible may have a footnote next to that clause. You know, sometimes a little letter or a number, a little superscript next to it, and it tells you to go look down at the bottom of your margins or the center column, wherever your Bible puts it. And it will tell you that this phrase, he loved them to the end, can be also interpreted as he loved them to the uttermost or eternally. So how would that change your understanding of the meaning? So there's one sense you can take it as time. Jesus loved them to the end of his time on earth. But based on that, he loved them to the uttermost. What does that imply? And it can imply eternity, or it can imply, I would say, fullness, completion. He loved them completely. There was no way in which Jesus' love was not manifested for them. In every area of their life, and in every way possible, Jesus exhibited his love to them. So which one's right? Is it about time, or is it about the fullness and maturity of Jesus' love? Yes. Oftentimes, John uses a word that is somewhat vague or uses it in a vague way because he wants you to understand both of the meanings. I do believe it means that Jesus loved them to the end of his time on earth, that he also loved them eternally, beyond, before time began and after time ends, and that he loved them fully and completely. Turn the page. Page four. 
John McCarthy's commentary says that the Lord loved them to the end. He shows the Greek word telos there, means perfection or completeness, and signifies that Jesus loves his own with the fullest measure of love. There is a general sense in which God loves the world of lost sinners, but he loves his own with a perfect, eternal, redeeming love, a love which surpasses knowledge. So just off the top of your head, we could go look at a bunch of verses, but we don't have time. What are some ways that Jesus manifested his complete love for his disciples to the end? If you're familiar with the upper room discourse, if you're familiar with what Jesus has did, did through uh, from the Passover meal to the point when he was on the cross and died, how did Jesus display his love to the end? Wash their feet. We're about to talk about that. That's a big one. What are some other ways he loved them to the end? What's that? Prayed for him. That's what I was just thinking. We have like a mind connection. John chapter 17 is one big prayer. You know how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? We often call that the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the real Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that only he can pray. You could better be called Matthew like 6 uh, and Luke 11, the, the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught. But John 17 is one giant. I mean, how cool is it to be a fly on the wall and get to hear Jesus pray? To get to hear the Son of God pray to the Father. You want to know what a good prayer sounds like? You want to know how you ought to pray? We get to hear that in John 17. And what does he pray for? How does he love his disciples to the end? He prays for them. And not only them, but for all who believe on account of their testimony. That's y'all. Jesus prays for you. And there's some crazy things Jesus prays for in that prayer. Some awesome things. One of the things he prays for is your death. Jesus prays for you to die. Well, that'll be exciting when we get to when we study that when we get to John 17. What are some other things Jesus did that manifested his love to the end? Yeah. He obeyed what his father said mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. He took the cup of wrath mm-hmm. um, for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he obeyed God perfectly to the very end for our for us to impute that to us. Jesus didn't need to do that. He was perfect already and righteous, but he took on flesh so that he could be a representative, a substitute, not just in his death, but a substitute for us in providing righteous, an alien righteousness to us. So he was obedient to the very end and loved us. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Oh man, that's huge. Even though he knew the imperfections of the disciples, he loved them. He was patient with them. Even when they were a bunch of dunderheads, he was so patient and gentle. He spent all this time in the upper room and when they, when they leave the upper room too, teaching them, trying to encourage them, saying, guys, I'm not going to be here very much longer, and I'm trying to give you some encouragement. It's not getting through your thick skulls right now, but you'll remember it when I'm gone, and it'll bring encouragement to your hearts because you're about to go through a lot of sorrow and sadness, but I don't want you to lose heart. So he spent all this time just really helping equip them and loving them and saying, it's about to change, but it's going to be okay. William Hendrickson wrote, In the full consciousness of the fact that he was about to return to the Father, Jesus, who had loved his own all along, knew that the proper time had arrived to reveal to them his love to the uttermost. You can tell what is important to a person based on what they talk about. And so we've seen what's important to John, and now we have also seen what's important to Jesus and what will be the overarching theme throughout John 13 through 17. He loved them to the end. And as Leon Morris summarizes it, up till now Jesus has had a ministry to men in general. From this point, he concentrates on those he loves intimately. Turn the page to page five. Humble love. How do you live life? With an invisible Savior? 
with humble love. Verse 2, John chapter 13, verses 2 through 5. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. With full knowledge of his looming betrayal and that his disciples did, did not understand the Messiah's path to the cross, that the disciples would all desert him, and that the crucifixion lie before him, Jesus started his final evening with his disciples by humbly loving them through foot washing. Hendrickson gives us a little bit of commentary about the foot washing protocol uh, in the historical background in his commentary. He says, Jesus and the disciples have come from Bethany. They weren't staying in Jerusalem because of it was, it was uh, the persecution. The Jews, the Pharisees were looking for him, trying to kill him. And Jesus was only going to let that happen on his timetable. So they came from Bethany. The feet, protected only by sandals, had become partly exposed to sand and dust. They were dirty, or at least uncomfortable. I'd add to there, it wasn't probably just only dust. I mean, we're talking about like animal poop everywhere. I mean, it was very dirty back then. Um, they were very dirty, or at least uncom uncomfortable. In such circumstances, the washing of the feet was customary. The host, though not himself performing this service, would generally see to it that it was performed. It was, after all, a menial task that is a task to be dis discharged by a servant. So the upper room was already prepared. They showed up. The food's there. A wash basin is there. Pitchers of water for cleaning, towel. But what stands out to you about this scene that we just read in John chapter 13? What stands out to you in particular about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples? Okay. It was a kind of a precursor. It's kind of a symbolic pointing to what he was going to do on the cross. That Jesus was there. That Jesus was there. Yeah, that's wild. Right? It says that in verse 2, right? The devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that, washed not only the disciples' feet, but he washed Judas's feet. Jesus loved Judas, the one who would betray him, the son of perdition. Jesus loved him to the end. Blow your mind about what love looks like. Love is not just something we do to those who love us in return. We do those to our enemies. I think Jesus taught that somewhere. What else stands out to you? Something of a reversal of roles. Someday, one day... A big reversal, Phipp says. We're alluding to Philippians 2, when the day comes when every knee will bow, even if you're an enemy, every knee will bow to Jesus. But here, Jesus is the one bowing the knee. And the crazy thing is, this is not even the greatest humiliation that Jesus is about to suffer yet. Philippians 2 talks about how he humbled himself to the point of becoming a servant, taking on flesh. But actually the crucifixion would be far more humiliating even than this. Jesus humbled himself here and did what a servant should have done, even though he was the king. Washing the dirty, stained, nasty, smelly feet of the people he created. when they should have been doing it to him. D.A. Carson noted, that the uh, noted the significance when he wrote in his commentary, with such power and status at his disposal, and he's saying that because in the verse it says, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus knowing he had all authority in heaven on earth, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. 
and can only what in what can be described as biblical slow motion, John gives a very detailed description of Jesus' humble love in these verses as he begins to wash twelve pairs of dirty feet. It just zooms in on the slow motion. Jesus, it says in in verse 4, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wipe them with a towel. Seven descriptors of actions that Jesus took just zoomed in to show us the crazy shocking thing that was happening. You can only imagine the what was going on in the disciples' minds as they saw this happening. Question number 16, as we look at Jesus' example of humble love, before the dinner began, as the disciples were walking into the upper room and preparing to be seated, Luke 22, verse 24, describes the scene this way. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What insight does this verse give us about why none of the disciples were washing feet? They were all trying to figure out if they were the greatest, wanting to be higher up. Yeah, so the disciples, and this wasn't the first time it happened, if you recall, John and and his brother and their mom was trying to get on Jesus' good side, so to speak, and be like, hey, can you give my sons a really nice cushy job and high position when when you take over and you establish your throne? And remember, the, the disciples heard them requesting that, and it says they were indignant. How dare you? You think you're better than us? And as they're going up here to the, to the feast, they're sitting there arguing about, man, when Jesus comes into his kingly throne, it's like, wow, who do you think is going to get to be the leader? Who's going to think to have this position? They're arguing, and it even impacts the seating arrangement because to get to sit by Jesus on his right and left during the dinner was a position of honor. So they're over here jockeying for position, arguing with each other. Jesus is overhearing this. And you can see that. Nobody wants to wash the feet because as soon as you start washing the feet, guess what that means? You don't have that high position of authority. You're the servant. So nobody's doing it. Nobody's wanting to make the first move. It's not that they didn't want to wash Jesus' feet. D.A. Carson wrote, Doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. Kind of like you think about John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. They, would, they could not conceive of washing one another's feet, since this was a task normally reserved for the lowliest menial servants. Peers did not wash one another's feet, except very rarely and as a mark of great love. So despite Jesus' prior teachings, the disciples continued to measure greatness based on status rather than service. They were so occupied with their own pride and selfishness that they failed to serve Jesus, who is really the only one who was worthy. Their lack of humble love toward one another translated into a lack of love for Jesus. Their failure to get up and serve each other because they didn't want to make the first move because they were like, well, who's better? Who's greater? Meant that even Jesus' feet went unwashed. You see how our lack of love for one another, if we're being proud, translates to a lack of love for Jesus. What are some ways that we might be tempted to refuse serving others because of our pride? What's that? Because he doesn't In our pride, we... So what, what do you, so try to say it again. Because he doesn't serve us. Who doesn't serve us? The act. The act doesn't serve us. Oh, gotcha. Okay, sorry. I can, I'm connecting now. I'm a little slow on the upkeep. Yeah, so sometimes we might be tempted to not serve other people because it doesn't serve us in the end. What's what's in it for me? Selfishness. Uh, I, uh, um, you know, Jesus kind of talked about this. You know, don't just invite people over for you know hospitality and food because of what they can do for you. Don't only invite your friends because it's easy and fun, but invite those who can't repay you. That's an act of love. Now, what are some other reasons we might be tempted to refuse serving others? 
inconvenient. Inconvenient, yeah. Kind of speaks to our pride that's like, you know, how dare you inconvenience me? My time is more important than this. I'm more valuable than this. I shouldn't have to do this kind of work. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I do? Sometimes we, we can get the uh, blank check mentality with Jesus where we say, man, Jesus, I love you so much. And I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. I am a blank check. You fill it out. Whatever you, whatever you write, I'll do it. You want me to be a missionary in Africa? I'll do it. You want me to go and, and uh, preach the gospel to a bunch of people at a conference? I'll do it. And then you slide the check across the table and Jesus writes in the memo, nursery. <laughs> Wait a second. It's not what I was expecting to do. How do you respond to that? How do you know if you're struggling with lovingly, humbly serving other people? Are you serving in ways that are you filled with joy and gladness when you serve? If you're not, you should probably question your motives. Are you looking down on people? James chapter 2 warns us about being partialist, showing favoritism because of people, how, whether people are poor or rich. Don't just give the greatest seat to the, those who are rich. Don't show partialism. So sometimes we might feel proud. We don't want to spend time with somebody because we look down on them. We don't want to do a certain job because we think it's beneath us. Think somebody else should do that. I my time is more important. There's all sorts of creeping ways that this can get into our lives, even just in the church today. But what makes Jesus' response to the disciples' sin so encouraging for us today? He recognized someone's need and just do it. Mm-hmm. He just the need. He said it a good example. Recognized the need and just did it. Didn't wait to be asked. Didn't care if it was menial. What else? Yeah. Doesn't hold all their past failures against them as reasons not to love them again. It's that unconditional love, right? Jesus didn't wait for them to get their act together before loving them. It's in the midst of them being stupid and sinful. He loved them to the end. Wendell, were you going to say something? Yeah. When we blow it, even when we're not in yet, even when we're not in a repentant mode of like recognizing and confessing our sin, because none of the disciples were sitting there going like, oh, you know, Jesus, I blew it. Oh, please forgive me. He still loves us. He engages. He initiates. Doesn't wait for us. John Calvin summarized it well. He says, And though he will afterwards explain more clearly for what purpose Christ washed the feet of his disciples, yet before doing so, John states in a single word that the Lord testified by his visible sign that the love with which he embraced them was firm and lasting. That though they were going to be deprived of his presence, they might still be convinced that death itself would not quench his love this conviction ought to be now fixed also in our hearts. Okay, we might pick up the pace here. We've got five minutes. Okay, Jesus' spiritual lesson. There's this, this wasn't just an external foot washing. Jesus um, it, it, it supplied a spiritual lesson into it. So in verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter. I don't know the order that he went to the disciples. It doesn't tell us. He did wash all of the disciples' feet, but it doesn't tell us if Simon was Simon first or was he last. It could be that he was close to being first since he was sitting close to Jesus. Um, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. It's the strongest negative in the Greek possible. Absolutely never, ever will you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So why did Peter resist Jesus' foot washing at first? Because he knew that he wasn't, that Jesus was his Lord. Yeah. And he sure didn't want to have him kneeling down and washing his feet. Yeah. 
So there's somewhat of an embarrassment. Like, don't, what are you doing, Jesus? You're the king. You shouldn't be doing this. I think there's embarrassment on his part too. Like, ah, I should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. Like, ah, this is not good. Some shame. Like, Jesus, the king is washing my feet. I'm feeling guilty now because I was being a chump. Verse question 18, according to Jesus' words in verse 7, what was wrong about Peter's thinking? What was wrong about Peter's thinking about Jesus that led to his refusal? A little more, maybe a challenging question. Sometimes as I read my questions, I go, oh, so he was basing on bad information. He, he thought he understood Jesus' motivation. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? That he was still thinking about status. Mm-hmm. Jesus was teaching him about servitude. Yeah. Remember, the disciples really never got it through their head that the and so Jesus is telling you, you're not thinking rightly. I came here to serve. He said this back in Matthew 20, 28. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That they had not gotten that into their heads yet. So Jesus, or Peter had no grid for his like, Jesus, why are you washing my feet? You're the king. You shouldn't be serving. When Jesus said, I came to serve. I came to suffer. So according to verse 8, what greater truth was Jesus pointing to through the foot washing? That he did come to serve. That he came to serve? He came to serve. In, in, in what specific way? In verse 8, though. I don't disagree with you fully, but it's in verse 8 there. It says, Jesus answered him, and what, what was he teaching him in that phrase? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have to accept my sacrifice. Uh, yeah, oftentimes throughout the Bible, washing is a picture of being cleansed from sin. Go to the Old Testament law. You go to passages like Psalm 51, which is that penitential psalm, the confessional psalm from David. It talks about wash me. Wash me with hyssop, cleanse me from my sin. Jeremiah, um, or sorry, Ezekiel 36 talks about how God will cleanse us and sprinkle us clean from our sin. So you see that all throughout there. So this illustration is not lost on the disciples that they understood when Jesus is talking about, if I don't wash you in a spiritual way, you will not be able to fellowship with me. Turn to page, page 7. So on account of Jesus saying that, Simon Peter changes his tune. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, uh, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, impulsively changes his tune and asks Jesus to wash his whole body. Even though Peter might have missed the spiritual point, he exhibits childlike faith and essentially says, Whatever you say, I need Jesus. I want all of it. But what incredibly important truth does Jesus teach in verse 10? So we already know that he taught, Hey, you need to be washed of your sin. You need to let me wash you of your sin completely. That was in verse 8. But here he teaches an additional truth in verse 10. What is that important spiritual truth? Do we need to act like Catholics and go to Mass every Sunday and re-sacrifice Jesus through the transubstantiation and communion to have our sins cleaned every week? It's once for all. Jesus died once for all. And when He changes and saves and cleanses somebody, it is a once-for-all washing. The one who has been bathed does not need to wash again except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
You are clean, but not every one of you, referring to Judas. So in verses 6 through 8, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that is the result of Christ's impending cross work. But Peter's unrestrained and thoughtless exuberance opens up the opportunity to turn the foot washing to another point. The initial and fundamental cleansing that Christ provides is a once-for-all act. Individuals who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work will doubtless need to have subsequent sins washed away. But the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. What a precious truth that, you know, we see that all throughout other scriptures, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 John 1, 7, if we confess with our mouth, uh, confess our sins, he is just and faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Jesus saves once and for all, forgives us of all our sins, but yet we are still struggling with sin in this life, repenting of that sin, confessing that sin to Jesus. And Jesus, even though he has saved us from the penalty of it already, cleanses us continually from that sin, cleanses us from the conviction that we face when we hear there is no more guilt, there is no more penalty, but Jesus continues to help us clean our life, to rid our life of sin, to make us more like Him. That is what is taught there. We are out of time. So we will finish this last section up next week and move on to the next section. Um, it will go a lot more smoothly since we had kind of do introduction to this uh, whole Sunday school series that took up a little time, but uh, we'll, we'll find our stride a little more uh, next week, and it won't take very long to finish that up. But I would just encourage you uh, to be to treat John 13 through 17 as your favorite book in the Bible right now for the next 12 weeks. Uh, read a chapter. It's five, it's five chapters. Read. One chapter a day, 13 on Monday, 14 on Tuesday, so on and so forth. And just immerse your mind and meditate, chew on the, the marvelous truths and wonders of Jesus' love that he loved his disciples to the end, and he loves us to the end. All right, you guys are dismissed. Thanks.